on and on and on for hours. I found it very upsetting because I, I wanted to try and get out of my head and I wanted to think of other things. I was thinking, you know, bloody hell, I'm going to die to Boney M. Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be discussing Augustine's conception of the divine essence. What is it? Uh, you know, uh, he's talking about God's divine simplicity, God's divine uh, ineffability, God having all his attributes identical with all God's other attributes, God uh, having his essence be ineffable and incomprehensible, and how God is pure actuality without predicates, pure immutability, pure impassibility, pure timelessness, these types of things. And the reason we're doing this is because there has been some comments and some uh, concerns to me that Augustine's conception of immutability is uh, ca categorically different than Aquinas's, which I doubt very thoroughly. You know, a lot of times people try to do this with uh, ancient ancient uh, scholars or ancient uh, philosophers. They'll say, hey, this guy had this nuanced other belief. Like, for example, Philo of Alexandria, they'll say he had a nuanced belief of immutability other than the Neoplatonists of his time frame. And uh, when you just look into it, it just it doesn't look true. Uh, what they're saying, it doesn't look like it uh, is accurate. And so actually, in a previous podcast, I had talked about Plato's conception of immutability being a little bit uh, nuanced than uh, the Plotinus, I, I sense I've looked into that uh, more thoroughly and reversed my opinion on that. I was relying on other scholarship, and uh, I don't actually think that. I think that this Platonistic conception that we're going to be going over today was pretty commonplace, that even Philo of Alexandria held this, that uh, people like Clement would have. Um, just, the, just This is the normal Neoplatonist conception. And so these nuanced other beliefs that people claim were part of this development, I don't think they actually exist. And remember, there's Platonistic scholarship who point out that Plato uh, very likely held these same beliefs. You have Plato's treatise on the one. You have his unwritten sermon on the good, which was uh, uh, everyone was confused because they thought he's going to talk about what it means to be good or something like that. But he's actually talking about this ultimate being, the sun, summon bonum as Augustine would say. But we are turning to Augustine's On the Trinity. Now, this was a late work, maybe very late in his life. So this should represent the final stage of Augustine. But remember, Augustine's coming from a Neoplatonist uh, perspective. He, he went through Platonism before he came to Christianity. So a lot of his works, if not all of them, are going to agree with this conception of God, this way that God functions and operates and how God's substance actually works mechanically. So in his book on the Trinity, of course, he is uh, addressing people he considers heretics. And this is what he says. He says that um, these people, these people are refuted who think that the substance of the father and the son not to be the same. Remember, this is a Neoplatonist concern. And so the idea is that uh, if the son is changeable, the son can't be the substance of the father who is unchangeable was pure simplicity. As soon as you start adding in persons of the Trinity, you're adding composition. You're adding in more parts. And so for God to be pure simplicity, 
he can't have those parts. And so the son can't be the same substance as the father. And this is what Augustine attacks pretty thoroughly in this section. He says, those are refuted who think the substance of the father and the son not to be the same because everything predicated of God is in their opinion, predicated of him according to substance. Now, Augustine is going to make a very like, technical differentiation saying that, yeah, we could attribute things to God's substance, but that's, that's, uh, it, we have to conceive of that differently than relational attributions, which, which are really correct. We turn to chapter one of book five, and he starts it off with, in God, nothing is to be thought corporeal or changeable. God doesn't have parts. God doesn't have a body. God can't change. He writes, so we may understand God if we are able as, and as much as we are able as good without quality. God, God is good without quality. You can't give him actual predicates. He's, he's just the good, right? Great without quantity. You can't quantify God because that gives him parts that gives him predicates. Uh, he's, he's the substance of those things. And we, we, analogically kind of understand what it means to be great and to be good, but it's, it's quantitatively different. One of my first podcasts, I was responding to a Calvinist and he was pointing out that these attributes of God are qualitatively different, God's goodness and whatever else. And that's what Augustine is talking about here. He says, great without quantity, a creator, though he lacks nothing. This is the idea that God can't gain from outside himself, ruling but from no position. He can't be located anywhere. He can't be in relation to us and have dependencies and uh, hierarchies, these types of things. Sustaining all things without having them, in his wholeness everywhere, yet without place, eternal without time, making things that are changeable without a change of himself and without passion. Yeah, so it sounds pretty standard Platonist uh, theology that God can't have predicates. He can't have attributes attributed to him. He's the greatest good, which is uh, indefinable, incomprehensible. Uh, you could call him great and good, but not in something that is conceivable that you could attribute something actually on him, right? Turning to chapter two of book five, this is entitled God, the only unchangeable essence. And now here he's going to define what he believes God is. He is, however, without a doubt, a substance, or if it be better, so to call it an essence, which the Greeks call ousia. For as wisdom is so called from being wise and knowledge from knowing, or so from being comes that which we call essence, and who is there that is more he who said to a servant Moses, I am that I am. Skipping down, but there can be no accident of this kind in respect to God. Remember that this idea of accident is uh, accidental properties or properties which don't have to be true. And Augustine explains this pretty thoroughly, so we don't actually have to guess what he means when he uses this word accident. He explains it for his readers because his readers probably are not going to be familiar with this type of argument, and so he has to let them in. What does this mean? That there is no accident in this kind in respect to God. And therefore, he who is God is the only unchangeable substance or essence to whom certainly being itself, whence comes the name essence, most especially and most truly belongs. And so God is the source of all other substances. God is 
the ultimate substance. And this substance we're going to learn is going to be immutable. It's going to be simple. It's going to be without parts, without change, a timeless. All these properties are going to be ascribed to it, although it is also ineffable. We can't comprehend what this is. We get a quasi-platonic change uh, comment, very, very next sentence. For that which has changed does not retain its own being, and that which can be changed, so God can't change or else he wouldn't uh, retain who he is as God. The God's substance is immutable in that there can be no deviation to it. There could be no new addition to it. They, they can't go through stages or phases. It has to remain immutable. And Augustine explains this later. We'll probably get to it in which he talks about how, yeah, when, when the Bible uses terminology about like people being predestined and then, and then turning to God and God accepting them, that those are all uh, conversations and language about the creature and not the creator. Like a Calvinist explained it once to me. It's like, oh, God is like a light post and uh, we're the ones who change in relation to God. And so um, we could be described, God could be described as repenting towards us or something like that. But really, it's just a positional change in us and not in God, which, you know, the, the open theist response is, you know, throughout the Bible, God sometimes repents for his own sake. It's not a change in the people. It's a change in God. And of course, God changes for without people's repentance, for example, in the Exodus 32 narrative. He changes for the sake of prayer rather than any repentance in the people. Chapter 3, we're going to kind of skip. He talks about the Arians. And what the Arians are doing is they, they take the two words that are attributed to a God and Jesus, the Father, begotten and unbegotten. And they say, since these words mean different things, um, then they definitely can't be talking about the same substance. And he, he's trying to address these arguments. Chapter 4 is where he describes what it means to have an accidental property. He writes, That which is accidental commonly implies that it can be lost by some change of thing to which it is an accident. For although some accidents are said to be inseparable, which in Greek are called akrasista, as the color black is to the feather of a raven, yet the feather loses that color. Not indeed so long as it is a feather, but because the feather is not always. Feathers degrade and, and go out of existence, so it loses that accidental property of black. He's saying that feather could be burned in a fire. It's not black anymore. The property of having blackness was an accidental property. That's not necessity of that feather. Wherefore, the matter itself is changeable, and whatever that animal or that feather ceases to be, and the whole of that body is changed and turned into earth, it loses certainly that color also, although the kind of accent, which is called separable, may likewise be lost, not by separation, but by change, as, for instance, blackness is called a separable accident to the hair of men, because hair, continuing to be hair, can grow white. Yef, yet, if carefully considered, it is sufficiently apparent that it is not as if anything departed by separation away from the head when it grows white, as though blackness departed thence and went somewhere and whiteness came in its place, but that the quality of the color there is turned and changed. Therefore, there is nothing accidental in God, because there is nothing changeable that may be lost. 
But if you choose to call that also accidental, which although it may not be lost, yet can decrease or increase, as for instance, the life of the soul, for as long as it is a soul, so long as it lives, and because the soul is always, it always lives, but because it lives more when it is wise, less than when it is foolish here, two, some change comes to pass, not such that the life is absent, as wisdom is absent of the foolish, but such that it is less. Nothing of this kind either happens to God because he remains altogether unchangeable. They're saying, though, even though we might have immortal souls, because these souls experience highs and lows within our life and, and uh, duration and, and change like that, that those are accidental properties as well. So God can't have that type of life in time reacting and interacting with the world because he is altogether immutable. And even though he has this eternal duration, it can't be the eternal duration that eternal souls have. It has to be something that doesn't undergo any sort of change, any sort of interaction with time. Chapter 5, nothing is spoken of God according to accident, but according to substance or according to relation. So now he's going to make a distinction that uh, anything that we talk about God is not an accidental property. God doesn't have these accidental properties. And so we need to do something in with the language of the Bible in which God has relationships, God has change, and these types of things. And it's not to call them accidental properties. It's just kind of like a figure of speech, a relational way of talking, that that's his category, relational way of talking about God, um, but not to be confused with accidental properties. And he says that we could also talk about God in God's substance. So let's, let's make the distinction there. Remember, God's substance, substance is going to be immutable. It's going to be simple. All his attributes are going to be identical with each other. That might be coming in book six, in which he points that out, that all God's attributes are identical with God. This, this is a common Platonistic notion, God's pure simplicity. He writes, Wherefore nothing in him is said in respect to accident, since nothing is accidental to him, and yet all that is said is not said according to substance. You know, we're not always talking about God's pure essence when we're talking about God. And he's going to point out uh, parts in the Bible in which re these relational ways of talking about God are actually introduced. But let's skip forward. He says, But in God nothing is said to be according to accident, because in him nothing is changeable. Yet everything that is said is not said according to substance. For it is said in relation to something, as the Father in relation to the Son, and Son in relation to the Father, which is not accident, because both the one is always the Father, and the other is always the Son, yet not always, meaning from time when the Son was born, so that the Father ceases not to be the Father, because the Son never ceases to be the Son. He's saying we could call him Father and Son. These are relational ways of talking about God. They're not actually ac accidental properties because they don't change. And he's going to go and double down on pure simplicity uh, further on. He's going to explain that even though we talk about this, uh, the Father and Son, there's no actual parts within the, the Trinity. We're skipping down to chapter 8, and this is titled, Whatever is spoken of God according to the substance is spoken of each person severally and together of the Trinity itself, one essence in God and three in Greek hypostasis in Latin persons. He writes, Wherefore, let us hold this above all, that whatsoever is said of that most eminent and divine loftiness in respect to itself is said in respect to substance, 
But that which is said in relation to anything is not said in respect to substance, but relatively. Because remember, God's substance is pure simplicity. It can't actually have relations. He says, and to that effect of the same substance in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is that whatsoever is said of each in respect to themselves is to be taken of them, not in the plural in some, but in the singular. For as the Father is God and the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, which no doubts to be said in respect to substance, yet we do not say that the very supreme trinity itself is three gods, but one God. Because there's because there's one unifying substance, it's a simple substance. When we talk about any particular one of the trinity, uh, we, we're actually talking about the trinity as a whole, this simple substance. It's it's not, you're, we're not really making mental distinctions in our mind, is his argument. Skipping down, Augustine disclaims having passions or emotions, nor is he liable to passions as far as belongs to that substance whereby he is God. So the Father is omnipotent, the Son omnipotent, and the Holy Spirit is omnipotent, yet not three omnipotents, but one omnipotent, omnipotent. Within the next paragraph, we start getting a little bit more clearer picture of how he thinks God's properties relate to this pure simplicity. He says, For insomuch as to God, it is not one thing to be and another thing to be great. It, no, it, God has to be identical to his attributes. So God's greatness is to be equated with God's substance. God has this a substance which we can call great, but which is identical with God. It can't be something else. It says, for insomuch as it as to God, it is not one thing to be and another thing to be great, but to him it is the same thing to be as it is to be great. Therefore, as we do not say three essences, we do not say three greatnesses, but one essence and one greatness. All God's properties are identical with God. In chapter 10, we're going to turn to a section which amplifies this idea that God's attributes are identical with him. He says, but since God is not great with that greatness, which is not himself, so that God in being great is, as it were, a partaker of greatness, otherwise that would be a greatness greater than God. So if there's a property called greatness that God participates in that property, you know, like uh, let's say there's like a fast car and we, we we categorize things as as fast oh that's a fast horse that's a fast runner these these uh individuals or objects are participating in fastness and so if there's a property called greatness that god participates in that makes that uh greatness greater than god therefore we can't say that god's a participant of greatness but that greatness is identical with god's essence and from God's greatness, we might build a category called great that we ascribe to other things, but God's not a participant in that property. God's above those conceptions. Reading on, otherwise, that would be a greatness greater than God, whereas there is nothing greater than God. Therefore, he is great with a greatness by which he himself is the same greatness. Skipping down. Let the same be said also of his goodness, and of his eternity, and as of his omnipotence of God, and in short, all the predicaments which can be predicated of God, as he is spoken of in respect to himself, not metaphorically and by similitude, but properly, if indeed anything can be spoken of him properly by mouth of man. God's identical to himself. 
Scrolling down, chapter 16, what is said of God in time is said relatively, not accidentally. Remember, God's not actually a participant in time. He reaffirms what he said previously uh, further in the paragraph. He says, how then shall we make it good that nothing is said of God according to accident, because nothing happens to his nature by which he may be changed, so that those things are relative accidents, which happen in connection with some change of the things of which they are spoken. This is talking about God in time. Anytime we talk about God in time, it can't be an accidental property. It's a relative property, and it's not, a, not talking about God's essence. God's essence is above these categories of time. Scrolling forward, how much more easily, though, we to admit concerning that unchangeable substance of God that something may be so predicated relatively in respect to the creature that although it being, it being to be so predicated in time, yet nothing shall be understood to have happened to the substance itself of God, but only to that creature in respect to which it is predicated. This is basically his light post analogy. He says, Lord, it is said that thou has made, been made our refuge. Look at, look at the language going on there within the Bible. God has been made something. Oh, that sounds like a change in God. But no, Augustine says, it can't be a change in God because God doesn't actually have change. What this is doing is instead speaking of this category called a relative category about God. He says, God, therefore, is said to be our refuge relatively for he is referred to us, and he then becomes our refuge when we flee to him. Like we change, not God. God becomes our refuge, but there's really not a change in God. There's, there's a change in our status in relation to God. Augustine writes, Therefore, that which begins to be spoken of God in time, and which was not spoken of him before, is manifestly, this is obviously, spoken of him relatively, yet not according to any accident of God, so that anything should happen to him, but clearly according to some accident that of that in respect to which God begins to be called something relatively. Any time-bound utterances about God is really about us, not about God's substance. It's a relative category applied to God. Augustine always does this thing where he just keeps repeating the same point over and over in, in different ways. And uh, another illustration he gives, when a righteous man begins to be a friend of God, he himself is changed. But far be it from us to say that God loves anyone in time with, as it were, a new love, which was not in him before, with whom things gone by have not passed away and things future have not already been done. God is timeless. God doesn't experience change. God can't experience duration and a change even relatively in relation to his creatures. Of course, that will give him dependencies on the creatures. And so when we're talking that this is just a category, when we're talking about change within man, it's about man's relationship to God and not God's relationship to man, which has to be this eternal thing. In chapter 4, we get another statement that God is identical with his attributes. He says, How much more, therefore, is this the case that the unchangeable and eternal substance, remember God is a simple, unpredicated substance, which is incomparably more simple than the human mind is, since in the human mind, to be is not the same as to be strong. You know, people can be something and not be strong. It's, it's an accidental property. 
or prudent or just or temperate for a mind can exist and yet have none of these virtues but in god to be is the same as to be strong and to be just or to be wise or whatever is said of that simple multiplicity or multifold simplicity whereby to signify his substance and so this is the the common idea you'll find in classical theism that all that is in god is god all god's attributes are identical with each other we turn to chapter six it says how god is a substance both simple and manifold he says but if it's asked how a substance is both simple and manifold consider first why the creature is manifold but in no way really simple at first all that is body is composed certainly of parts remember god's going to be simple god can't be composed of these parts why the creature is manifold but in no way really simple at first and first all that is body is composed certainly of parts so that therein one part is greater another less and the whole is greater than any part whatsoever or how great so whatsoever for in the heaven and earth all parts of the whole bulk of the world and so he's talking about parts these these guys really care very much about parts and uh, depreciation and change and, and relative motion of parts and god can't have any of these that that would violate their entire metaphysics he says and hence the nature of the body is conclusively proved to be manifold and with no respect simple and the, 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 these are the categories he ends his chapter saying for nothing simple is changeable but every creature is changeable chapter seven i got another highlight god is trinity but not triple triplex but God is truly called in manifold ways, great, good, wise, blessed, true, and whatsoever other things seem to be said of him, not unworthily, but his greatness is the same as his wisdom. Yeah, all God's attributes are identical with each other and identical with God is the idea. For he is not great by bulk, but by power, and his goodness is the same as his wisdom and greatness, and his truth the same as those things. And in him it is not one thing to be blessed and another to be great, or wise, or true, or good, or in a word, to be himself. God is identical with himself. He goes on, neither since he is trinity, he is therefore to be thought triplex or triplex. Otherwise the father alone or the son alone will be less than the father and the son together. Although indeed it is hard to see how we can say either the father alone or the son alone since both is the Father is with the Son, and the Son with the Father, always and inseparably, not that both are the Father or both are the Son, but because they're always in one in relation to the other, and neither the one nor the other alone, but because we call even the Trinity itself God alone, although he is always with the Holy Spirits and the souls, but we say that he only is God because they are all <laughs> because they are not also God with him. So we call the Father the Father alone, not because he is separate from the Son, but because they are not both together the Father. It, it's kind of like this arbitrary distinction here. He's just saying, uh, since the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are always in this perfect relationship and unchangeable and one simple substance, we could still talk about these differentiations, but it's, they're not real differentiations that make them into parts. It is still a unity and uh, we could still conceive of them in this triune God, but it is the one essence. Since therefore the Father alone, or the Son alone, or the Holy Spirit alone, is as great as is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together, 
in no manner is he to be called threefold. For so much as bodies increase by union to themselves, it's like even though there's a trinity, it's the same, we'll, we'll, we'll use air quotes, the same size as a simplicity. And so it's not really a trinity because a trinity would actually increase the quote-unquote size. Uh, and so in this way, we have to understand the trinity as simplex, not triplex. So I'll let anyone who's interested uh, finish these books and read them in full and see if uh, I'm making anything up. But what we did do today, and we're going to probably cut here, is I looked at Augustine's conception of the substance of God. And we see fairly clearly he's adopted Platonic substances, that God has to be pure simplicity. We haven't got to the ineffability quotes. Maybe we'll have to go pull some of those up. Let's see what I got here. Here's a quote. It is a great and very rare thing for a man after he has contemplated the whole creation corporeal and incorporeal and has discerned its mutability to pass beyond it and by the continued soaring of his mind, this is the Platonic ascent, to attain to the unchangeable substance of God and in that height of contemplation to learn from God himself that none but he has made all that is not of the divine essence. For God speaks with man not by means of some audible creature dining in his ears so that the atmospheric vibrations connect him and makes with him that hears the sound. God has to speak inwardly to us, but God, God doesn't speak verbally to us. We see with our mind's eyes Augustine's concept, nor even by means of a spiritual being with the semblance of body, such as we see in dreams or similar states. For even in this case, he speaks as if the ears of the body, because it is a means of the semblance of the body he speaks, and with the appearance of a real interval of space. For visions are exact representations of bodily objects. Not by these, then, does God speak, but by the truth itself, if anyone is prepared to hear with the mind rather than the body. We need to perform the Platonic ascent. He says, For since man is most properly understood, or if that cannot be, then at least believed, to be made in God's image, no doubt it is that part of him by which he rises above those lower parts he has in common with the beast, which brings him nearer to the supreme platonic ascent. We need to turn inwardly into our mind's eye, leave the bodily senses, and then attain the beatific vision. But since the mind itself, though naturally capable of reason and intelligence, is disabled by besotting and inverterate vices, not merely from delighting and abiding in, but even from tolerating his unchangeable light until it has been gradually healed and renewed, made capable of such felicity, it had in the first place to be impregnated with faith and so purified. We have to go through this purification before our ascent takes hold because bodily things weigh us down. And that in this faith it might advance the more, the more confidently towards the truth, the truth itself, God, God's Son, assuming humanity without destroying his divinity, established and founded this faith that there might be a way from man to man's God through a God-man. Remember, Jesus is that spiritual key that allows this Platonic ascent to happen. He bridges the different hypostases so that we can ascend. For this is the mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. For it is as man that he is mediator and the way since if the way lies between him who goes and the place where why he goes, there is hope of his reaching it. But if there be no way, or if he know not where it is, what boots it to know whether he should go? 
we don't know where to go if not christ leading the way this is kind of like a play the calvinistic regeneration the gnostic regeneration that uh, you have to have that will lead you towards the light now the only way that is infallibly secured against all mistakes is when the very same person is at once god and man god our end man our way more of a platonic ascent quote uh but we'll find other quotes uh, other times but um thinking back about what we've talked about to get, today god is pure essence this essence is pure simplicity it can't be affected by time any time relative statements about god have to be understood in a relative way and not about who he is as god his god essence because his god essence doesn't change it's not subject to time it's not subject to accidental properties it's not subject to relationships it's not subject to parts all god's attributes are god and identical to god and although we might talk about these attributes in different ways conceptually they're the same attribute they're the same essence of god because god's essence is partless it's pure simplicity and so Oh, what does this sound like? This, it, it's immutable, too. We talked about these immutability quotes. Is this a conceivably different than the Platonistic notion of who God is as pure essence? It's not. It's the exact same thing. Is this what Aquinas is talking about? Uh, probably the same conception. If if anybody, if, if I'm misunderstanding anyone, it's going to be Aquinas and not Augustine. But Augustine's conception of God is the Platonic pure essence, Platonic simplicity, Platonic timelessness. Platonic uh, incorporeality, it doesn't have any body or parts. Uh, Platonic eternity, th th these are the values that he cares about. And so God is immutable in Augustine. This doesn't mean that God is some sort of substance out there that interacts with the world whatsoever. It's, it's not just God can't change in his, his disposition or God can't change in his emotions but God is in time interacting. No, God is above all those categories. It, it, introducing him into time, introducing him to relationships, introducing him to even a subservient type of hierarchy within the Trinity in which the Trinity can be differentiated from each other. All of this would undo divine simplicity. This is pure Platonic simple essence. This is Augustine's view of God. And along comes with, comes with that all the other attributes of being pure actuality. That's that's what we're talking about when there's no accidents in God. God has to be pure act. God is pure being. God is pure actuality. He can't change. He can't have potency, potentiality to be different than he is. God can't gain. God can't interact. God can't have relationships. God can't have predicates. All of these would undo this divine simplicity. God is immutable in a hard sense. It's not that, oh, God can feel emotions or something like that, like maybe Norman Geisler might uh, ascribe to some of these things. Nothing like that, because all those things would be changes in his essence. We did read a quote in which he disclaims divine passions. God can't have passions. Uh, passions are emotional state, uh, experiential knowledge. That type of knowledge needs to be disclaimed and uh, decried from the Godhead or else the divine simplicity would be undone. So keep this in mind when we're talking about Augustine. Augustine's not a branch on the way to higher Platonism within Christianity. This is well established in Christianity by the time Augustine arrives on the scene, and he's just giving a pure Platonistic explanation 
of the Bible. A lot of times people like Ambrose would uh, incorporate it in their sermons, but not be so explicit. Augustine's a lot more explicit about what he believes is behind the divine essence, the divine substance. And so Augustine is a believer in divine, platonic immutability, and the substances. Any questions or comments, put that down below or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening. Also, if you've read my book, leave a review on Amazon. Thank you.